2: to be the greatest fog song ever written. I know there's some other good fog songs. We'll be playing some of them to you because we're going to talk about fog. We're going to talk about meteorological fog, otherwise known as fog fog, but we'll also talk about brain fog, and we'll talk about a new kind of private intelligence service Uh, called Fog Reveal, which is unfortunately collecting intelligence about you and me and everybody. All right. So, but we're going to begin with the fog, the fog that we know uh, so well, the fog that we dread uh, on a drive at night. Um, So let's begin it with a poet. Let's begin it with Carl Sandburg.
1: The fog comes on little cat feet.
2: It sits looking over city and harbor on silent haunches and then moves on. All right. So, here in the first segment, we're going to talk about what fog is, but we're also going to talk about the somewhat alarming prospect of diminished fog uh, in our world due to rising temperatures. Here to help us with all that is Travis O'Brien, professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Ta- Travis O'Brien, welcome to our conversation.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: So let's start with what fog is. And it turns out fog is kind of a complicated thing. It isn't caused just by one or two things. It, it's really the product uh, of a whole bunch of different factors. Uh, although I guess one thing we could s- sort of say is fog is basically a cloud that's unusually near the ground, right? hmm
1: That's exactly right. And I mean, that, that sounds like a simple starting point. but. I I mean, well, let's actually start with the World Meteorological Organization's definition, because it's the one definition that we have for fog, fog, as you put it. It's visibility caused by suspended water in the air uh, where visibility is reduced by a kilometer or less. That's just a little over a half a mile. Um, So I I think a a big question that sort of gets at the complexity is why would you get a cloud at the ground? So this idea, it's related to relative humidity, right? So the air is made up of nitrogen, argon, oxygen. These molecules just bouncing around. We don't see it, but we can feel it. And likewise, there's water, H2O, in the air that we don't see until it's condensed. And that point happens at 100% relative humidity. And that either happens for one of two reasons, either because the temperature has gotten low enough that the molecules are slow enough that they start to just spontaneously either stick to each other, two water molecules sticking together, or they stick to, you know, sticky stuff in the atmosphere, these minuscule particles called aerosol. Or it can happen because you add enough water to the atmosphere that there's enough water vapor molecules bouncing around that they spontaneously start to form. So 100% relative humidity. That's sort of our starting point.
2: Right. And so what we're really kind of talking about, too, is this kind of knife's edge between water as vapor and water as liquid, right? This is kind of as close to almost both as it gets.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, and I should also add, it could be ice too. I mean, there's ice fog, mm-hmm. there's also freezing fog, whole whole sorts of other things that we could talk about. But it's, um, I mean, all the, all the various types of fog that form, it boils down to answering this question, how did you get the air to 100% relative humidity? So, I mean, let's start with a really common one that people experience all over the world, radiation fog. This is the type of fog where, you know, you go to bed, it's a nice clear night, Cold out. Uh, there's maybe a light breeze. You wake up in the morning and suddenly it's foggy. Um, that happens because of what we call radiative cooling. Everything in the universe emits thermal radiation. It's, you know, it's kind of like light, but it's a low enough frequency that our eyes can't pick it up. But you can feel it. Um, on really clear nights, uh, you know, the ground can emit to space this this radiation. The ground cools, and if there's a light breeze, that picks up the coolness of the ground, that cools the air to the point where. Eventually, 100% relative humidity is reached, and fog or cloud starts to form at the ground. So then we get fog. Um, we contrast this with maybe advection fog, which is the other type that people might come across. Um, if you live near a lake or kind of a cold body of water, you might see, you know, a, a gentle breeze coming from a, a warmer, wetter area, passing over the body of water. The air cools as it goes over that body of water, and that causes the air to reach 100% relative humidity. So cloud starts to form at or near the water surface of the ground. It'll often look like the water's sort of steaming. Again, this is fog, um, this time where the air has been cooled by being in contact with the surface rather than by radiating to space.
2: And so, I mean, we can sort of talk about what causes fog, but there are also things that either add or subtract a fog, right? I mean, there are ways in which either the fog will be denser or less dense. The fog will last 12 hours instead of five hours, right? And and there are a host of other factors come in. You were talking before about stickiness uh, of aerosols. I, I, my understanding is that air pollution can actually contribute to fog. And I don't know if that's what you're talking about with the, the sticky that stuff. Yeah, exactly right. I mean,
1: it's actually smog. The other, you know, really common form of fog that people hear about a lot is really it's a polluted type of fog where you have, you know, pollution from cars or industrial sources or whatever. That pollution that represents little tiny minuscule particles in the air. These things are like, you know, less than a hair's width. Or even smaller, um, but water sticks to just about everything, and there's an abundance of this in the atmosphere everywhere. But you get near polluted sources, and there's a, a lot more of it. And so, if you have a fixed amount of water in the air, let's say that you know I've got a a, a liter of water that I've got to distribute over a thousand little aerosol particles i'm going to get some fairly large drops but say i have a million aerosol particles in a really polluted area that same liter of water is going to be distributed over those million of drops those are going to be much smaller and so the fog looks different in that case it actually tends to be it has a it's more optically thick is the term that we use um so it's it's harder for light to pass through it without interacting with the with the little droplets um it's also i mean just from a human health point of view that's it's much worse it's a really good way of um getting some really chemically active stuff in water where it starts you know chemistry starts to happen and then getting that in our lungs so that that's also quite bad but i mean you you're asking about like you know what causes fog to last longer i mean part of it is how physically thick it is so sometimes you know if you got a light a strong enough light breeze, you can get fog to mix up to, you know, 100 feet or so. And that's really hard for sunlight to get through to that to the surface. And the reason that's important is because when the sun rises, that's often the time that we see the fog, quote unquote, burn off. And which is sort of a misnomer. It's actually sort of eroding away from the bottom. The You know, you, you warm the ground, that reduces the humidity right at the surface below 100%. So you have no longer have cloud right at the ground. The base of the the uh, cloud layer starts to lift and lift and lift until it just exists no more. It sort of erodes away from the bottom up. So a really thick fog is hard to get rid of. Um, Having a lot of pollution in a fog can make it hard to get rid of and, and so on.
2: All right. So we, we uh, as just sort of regular users of the planet, we probably think in terms of fog as a either a romantic thing or a driving hazard or something that's good for Raymond Chandler detective novels. Mm-hmm. But fog really has some real utility, right? I mean, there are... Parts uh, of the coastline in the west where they don't get a lot of rain, but you grow pumpkins, you grow artichokes, you've got redwoods in the north and Tory pines to the south, and they're all kind of vibing off fog to some degree. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's amazing actually the amount of water that is transported from the ocean to the western coastal regions across the world um, in, in all the mid-latitudes. So uh, South America, Africa, and in, in the US here in California, the sort of classic San Francisco fog. Um, so there, if you haven't lived out in California before, there's basically no rain there from about April to November. That's a really dry season. But the fog season starts right about around June, goes through September, and it brings liters to sometimes gallons of water in per you know square meter. So imagine, and, and people actually do this, making a, a mesh. So you you rig up a mesh, you know it's three feet on the side, and you you point it in the dominant rig, uh, wind direction. That mesh. Hits the water particles as, sorry, the water uh, droplets as they blow through and it drips down the mesh and then goes into a little collector. Um, my colleague uh, Peter Weiss down at, U- at University of California, Santa Cruz, for example, uses this to look at what is actually in fog, um, but he also me- uses it to measure how much water is captured by fog. And some on some really foggy days, they can get like a gallon of water in this three by three foot mesh. So imagine that water coming into a really dense forested ecosystem like the Redwoods, which have these these pine needles and lots of them that, are, that almost seem to have evolved to Take advantage of the fog. They've got these little fine points on the end that water droplets like to uh, stick onto. They, they've got little openings in their uh, in their well in the needles or the leaves that all plants have called stomata that appear to be able to actually suck water in. It was actually thought, you know, 10, 15 years ago that that was physically a po- impossible, but the redwoods seem to actually somehow make that possible. They actually can absorb water directly through the needles. That water that's not absorbed drips to the forest floor. It Uh, it sort of acts like rain. So you can get almost the same amount of water that you get sort of from a a steady rain just from fog being present. And it's there all the time in these
2: western coastal regions. Like, you know,
1: 50, 60 percent of the time there is fog present
2: in a lot of these regions. Right. So that means fog has an obvious value to us and maybe multiple obvious values to us. So my understanding is that at least there's some reason to think that the warming of the planet is decreasing fog, that we uh, are getting less fog and will get even less fog than that as we go along. But I'm also reading that not every climate scientist sees this exactly the same way. uh, So tell us a little bit more about how you see it.
1: Yeah, and I'll say I'm, I'm one of the climate scientists who's a bit more on the cautious side of that. I mean, we can say definitively um, on the West Coast of the US in specific regions, we have seen less fog over the last 50 60 years um, we see less fog now than we did you know 50 60 years ago um, and a lot less like a 30% less uh, it seems to have stabilized in the last 10 or 15 years it's not clear why that's happening but the reason i'm a little cautious about this is because of the complexity of fog and we don't understand really the driver of that decline and we don't have a really good theory for how global warming should affect fog i mean there there's one long standing theory that's been around for you know uh, since about 1990, um, uh, scientist Andrew ba- uh, Bakun uh, came up with this idea that in, in a warmer climate, um, the land will heat faster than the ocean. So the land will be warmer, and when you have a temperature gradient in in on land or at the surface, that tends to drive wind. And so that would drive a strong wind parallel to the coast, and those winds Force on the ocean, they drive upwelling, and upwelling causes cold water from the deep ocean to rise to the surface. And so, ironically, that actually would does cause the near coast, coastal ocean, to cool more in a warmer climate. This mm-hmm. this is something that we uh, appears to already be happening. The question is, what does that do to fog? Because we associate coastal fog with those cold temperatures um, in sort of the stable atmosphere that's associated with that. But fog's a lot more complex than that, especially this type of uh, what I would call stratocumulus type fog, the type of fog that's on these west coasts that's related to these massive, you know, thousand mile decks of, of cloud that Exist over the open ocean. Um, they're controlled partly by how warm the atmosphere, sort of in the middle atmosphere, actually is, and that's controlled partly by how much it rains in tropical regions. That warm, uh, when when clouds condense, they actually release heat, and you get a lot of rain that heats the atmosphere. That and the air ends up being transported over the mid latitudes. That causes a really stable situation where the clouds can't rise and develop into cumulus clouds. And so that that keeps the clouds present. But all these things can change in a warmer climate, the wind speeds, the the stability, the atmosphere, and so on. So th- there's a lot of experimental work to be done in order to understand you know, what we should expect for the future.
2: Let me ask you a slightly separate question. Okay. So Mark Twain famously said that in, you know, the coldest winter I ever spent was the summer I spent in San Francisco. And, and what I wonder about that is, once you have fog, does it make the immediate environment cooler?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does, and this has been demonstrated pretty thoroughly. I mean, I'll I'll say there's there's two effects I think that they're important to note here. I mean, one is the direct radiative effect. When you have fog, it's blocking the sunlight, and even if the cloud is not directly at the ground, in some areas, like you know, the, the coast of California is mountainous, and so it might be fog in one area, but just low cloud in another. But it doesn't matter. That layer of cloud is blocking the sunlight, and that is that legitimately cools the area. So yeah, you're absolutely right. But the other factor, and this is, I think, where the Mark Twain quote comes from, and I'll I'll add my own sort of twist to this story, that I was just out in California uh, last week. I came out here from the Midwest when it was about 30 degrees. I was dressed for that weather. I got to Berkeley, California, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. It was about 50 degrees, but foggy. And I was colder wearing the same clothes than I was out in the Midwest at 30 degrees. And the reason for that is those droplets in the fog, they can get through into your clothes and onto your skin and they evaporate off and that cools. And so from a biological point of view, we experience that biological cooling of evaporation. And that's I think part of the reason that people feel like fog is so cold even though the, the, the temperatures when you look at the thermometer don't seem that bad. I mean, 50 degrees seems like it should be pleasant, but it can be downright frigid when there's fog present.
2: All right, we're going to have to stop there. Uh, to be continued, I mean, there's so much more to learn here. Uh, but Travis O'Brien, you've uh, you've been very helpful in sort of getting us started in understanding this incredibly complex phenomenon. Travis O'Brien, professor of earth and atmospheric sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We're going to continue from there to brain fog, so I'll be in my natural habitat. Like
3: a storm,
1: oh. being born again.
0: Long, long ago, say an hour or so, I recall that I saw your smile. I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true. All
2: right. Well, yes. Sometimes you remember, and sometimes you don't. Was it in Tahiti? Were we on the Nile? So we're talking a lot of these days about brain fog in connection with long COVID or just COVID generally. It's not a uh, new phenomenon, or it's not a new term anyway. So let's try to figure out a little bit more about what we're talking about when we talk about brain fog. And let's do that with Javid Sukura, uh, the chair of psychiatry at the Institute of Living and chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. Well, welcome to our show, doctor. Thank you so much. So brain fog is kind of a set of sensations in search of a diagnosis, right? There's Uh, There isn't really any kind of easily quantifiable way of saying this person is experiencing brain fog and this other person isn't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like, for example, something like pain. Brain fog is a subjective experience that an individual has that is absolutely real and tangible to them, but is going to be different for each different individual.
2: So before we started talking about it in terms of COVID, we there were other contexts in which it would come up like postpartum brain fog. I don't know. You probably can rattle off a few others.
0: Yeah, I think all of us to some degree can understand and appreciate what the concept of brain fog is, because there can be times for folks where there's a sense of feeling sluggish or slow uh, and they feel like they just don't have as much gas in their tank or they're just not as sharp as they typically are. Um, And that's when anything like our attention, our concentration, our ability to plan and organize things is impacted by things like sleep, um, things like being postpartum or other forms of uh, medical challenges like post-concussive syndromes, medication side effects, chemo, the list goes on.
2: So right now we're, we're trying to understand and study a pandemic while we're in the pandemic, which is like trying to build a bridge while you're walking across it at the same time. I mean, this is really difficult to do. But it does seem observationally true that people who have COVID and specifically people who have long COVID are more likely to be describing the general, you know, the general phenomenon uh, of brain fog, right?
0: Yes, I agree with you. And and to your analogy, I would add uh, to do that with a blindfold. So we definitely have to Humble ourselves about what we know and don't know, but you're absolutely right that um, there's a good proportion of people out there who are experiencing persistent and debilitating symptoms of long COVID, of which uh, brain fog is one of those symptoms that has led to challenges for folks in the wake of all of this.
2: So, you know, obviously if you think you're having it, you want to know if you're having it, Uh, you want a doctor to be able to tell you whether you're having it. So typical things like a mental status exam template, you know, uh, serial sevens and try to remember five things and I'll ask you about them later and that kind of stuff, that doesn't seem to be exactly the right net to catch the fish that is brain fog.
0: Well, I think that, The the net has to be wider, and it has to appreciate how individual and different the experience might be. One of the ways in which we can uh, address it is really thinking about our functioning day to day. Right. So rather than worrying about what's happening and why it's happening, ask ourselves what's happening and how is it affecting what we need to do each day in terms of our function? And then that will help us kind of draw the line about whether or not we need to seek additional support assessment or evaluation uh, to find out if something else might be happening.
2: And and so, you know, you're talking about humility before. And, and one thing that we know is there are other symptom patterns uh, out there in the world that people have and they have it with some consistency, but it doesn't map specifically on to or at least per, it doesn't map perfectly onto a specific diagnosis. And so it gets kicked into categories you know so you have something like undifferentiated connective tissue disease which is recognized r- recognized by patient communities but you know it's hard to make it a diagnosis it's hard to figure out what to do about it is, is there a, a strong chance brain fog is going to be kind of more like that something that a lot of patients agree that they have without necessarily neuroscience figuring out exactly what to do about it or even how to test for it
0: So I absolutely think that there are many aspects of brain fog um, and or long COVID that we're still figuring out and learning about. But I think that there are many conditions and symptoms out there that we don't know everything we should about them. The challenge is in our current system, there are many of us who want to know. And not knowing creates a sense of uncertainty and anxiety, which actually makes things like, brain fog much worse. So I know in my practice, I've worked in the chronic pain world for many years. What we really talk about is, in this system, we really have to believe patients when they're having these symptoms, not invalidate them or gaslight them. We have to really build trust because many times patients feel that people ignore their symptoms or diminish them as something not real. But We also have to work with people to emphasize that we believe in them. the vast majority of cases of brain fog improve over time, and that there are ways to help them enhance their functioning. Despite that
2: uncertainty, right? And in the case of COVID, severe COVID, there may even be instances where it's hard to tell whether the disease, the virus itself, and the expression of the virus in the body is causing brain fog, or some of the treatment you might have gotten. Particularly if you wanted wind up on a respirator to be on a, if you to be on a ventilator, you're going to be sedated so you don't kick out the uh, the tube. So, I mean, that that could leave you with at least a temporary case of brain fog that wasn't actually caused by the disease so much as the treatment.
0: You're absolutely right. There's so many different things that contribute to these types of symptoms and experiences. Rarely, if ever, is it simply just one thing with a straight line from A to B. And there are many things in medicine that are complex and have that kind of multiplicity to them. Um, which is all the more reason to focus more on our functioning than what exactly might be the specific thing that's going on.
2: So there's just stuff that's good for you anyway that you could do theoretically, theoretically, right, if you were experiencing what seemed to be brain fog. And I assume this begins with sleep.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I think the caveat there is a lot of these basic things, when we share them, you know, we imply that we know people are trying their best to do them um because sometimes when you share them people feel invalidated as though that's something they've, they've already tried so sleep is number one sleep is extremely important to kind of flush out uh replenish and refresh all those chemicals that help with our thinking that are implicated in this but in addition to that you know just taking care of ourselves um making sure that we have a healthy amount of exercise balancing out our days and trying to to take it easy on ourselves and be kind to ourselves.
2: Let's go back to sleep for a second, though. A a lot of people think, well, I'm not sleeping. I should probably take Ambien. Uh, I assume that's not going to be good for your brain fog either.
0: Yeah, so it's a great point that a lot of the sedative medications that we use for sleep can, in some cases, make the symptoms of brain fog worse. So we generally prefer folks working on non-medication solutions to sleep but in some circumstances if things are really bad then i'm d- discussing it with the health professional and medication might be indicated
2: so one thing that I, I've been engaged in a personal uh, multi-decade study of the effects of wine uh, on brain fog, and I, I'm prepared to say that it actually does contribute to brain fog. But the other thing is people sometimes think, oh, I'll have a couple of glasses of wine, I'll sleep better. Um, that's, that's, that's also going to be, I assume, counterproductive.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one, right? So I appreciate you bringing in the personal anecdote. I think that at the end of the day, different people will find different things to kind of self-medicate what they're experiencing. And it's important to remember that with every choice comes risks and benefits. And often with alcohol, there are many, many risks.
2: The other part of this, what you're talking about, everything that you've said so far, too, is it, pointing towards another thing, which is with these kind of tricky conditions that don't have a specific test that either validates or invalidates the diagnosis and, and maybe several. It's like the real fog. It's like meteorological fog. It's, it could be a lot of different things causing it. It could be a lot of different expressions uh, of a thing. It's really important to have a dialogue with your healthcare provider. I say this if you want to talk about personal anecdotes. My doctor of many decades retired recently, (laughs) and I'm terrified because, like, if I really need to have the kind of conversation you've been describing where a doctor has to evaluate my perceptions and either trust or not trust what I say or tell me things to do, you know, I really miss that relationship that I had for a really long time. But I think what you're saying argues for that kind of relationship, a doctor who really knows you and to whom you can speak.
0: Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important ingredients is having a trusting, supportive relationship with your primary care doctor. You now, I recently moved to the U.S. and to Connecticut from Canada. One of the biggest priorities for me is to find a good family doctor because I had such a fantastic one before. You want the kind of relationship where you know you can trust the person, but also where you're working with someone who validates and recognizes that just because uh, you're feeling a symptom uh, and, and maybe they're may not be as certain answers this doesn't mean that that's not real. Doctors and people like me who work in the system really have to do a better job of recognizing that um, no one's going to choose unnecessary suffering and that these subjective experiences of symptoms are truly real and uh, a problem for people that should be validated.
2: All right, words to live by. We have to stop there, uh, but uh, Dr. Javid Sukura uh, is the chair of psychiatry at the Institute of Living and chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, we're talking about fog today. Fog, fog, brain fog. We'll be talking about another kind of fog you've never heard of, and you won't be any happier or more reassured, or re- reassured once you know about it. And where that fog horn home- I will be coming home mm. Yeah, when the fog I want to hear it I don't have the fear
0: And I
1: want to rock your gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old
2: So there's some people I've got to thank here. One of them is Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Another one is Jennifer LaRue. This is her baby. She produced this episode. And I should probably thank Lily Tyson because I can see her through the glass right now. She's probably doing something very responsible and helpful and constructive and improving also. So, yeah, we talked about fog, fog, and then we talked about brain fog. Now we're going to talk about a kind of fog, it's not really a kind of fog, that is probably a little less visible to you, and they like it that way. Joining us now is Anne Toomey McKenna, a visiting professor of law at the University of Richmond School of Law in Richmond, Virginia, to talk about something you probably haven't heard of. It's called Fog Reveal. It's an LLC it's a lot of other things besides, but she knows better than I do, so let's get going. And to me, McKenna, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to maybe clearing up some of the fog around Fog Reveal. <laughs> yes. I,
2: I think we need to begin with kind of a thumbnail description of what Fog Reveal is and what it does. I note that if you try to go onto the Fog Reveal website, there's this kind of ominous thing that kind of comes up <laughs> and makes you think, well, probably I should just go away and not, not do anything. But explain what fog reveal is doing
3: yeah sure so fog reveal is really a web application that a company came up with where it was aggregating advertising id data from our mobile devices so we download all of those apps and you click i agree and you're thinking great i just am getting my weather we're where i'm running today But Fog collects this data from various apps or the data itself is collected from all of these apps. It's not like coming from a major tech company like Google. It's all of these little apps that we're using on our devices. And Fog assembles this data and the application makes it possible to track devices by their specific advertising ID numbers, or it makes it possible to search an entire specific area, which is something normally law enforcement, if they wanted, they would need to get a geofence warrant. And that's what we call when you you track everything that's in a specific area. And FOG created this really remarkable tool. And I say remarkable in terms of, it's remarkable at how much surveillance it actually enables. And fog markets and sells this to law enforcement agencies across the country. So how is
2: this different from what we broadly call data mining? I mean, I sort of, without ever really thinking about it very much, have this kind of default assumption that if I'm an evangelical Lutheran living in western Pennsylvania and owning an electric car and I'm allergic to shellfish or something, that I'm pretty easily findable. On all those bases, like if they're looking for somebody who fits all of those descriptions, they can find me. And I'm not thinking about fog reveal. I guess I'm thinking just generally about data mining. Fog reveal seems different somehow.
3: Yes. So I think, you know, you, you make this very good point and, and underlying that point where these very specific details you included about a particular profile of a person. That's what makes tracking people for advertising purposes valuable, right? So you can market a specific product, a specific political message, because there's aggregated data about us that can be used for that purposes. When we take geolocation data, because that's what is at the heart of FOG's application, really precise, specific, detailed geolocation information. When we take that information, it can reveal our patterns of life that tell, you know, far more specifically, like where we go, where we worship, who we're around, what time of day we do things, whether we visit a reproductive center, you know, very specific, detailed data. Fog itself, in some of its marketing, materials markets it as capable of predictive analytics, right? Predicting what a particular device and i.e., you know, of course, the device user will be doing when they'll be doing it and how they'll be doing it.
2: And pretend I'm the dumbest kid in your class, in your law school class, and that's (laughs) not going to be a huge imaginative leap on your part. You know, why is that legal? Why <laughs> why don't they have to get a warrant? Why can they just go and buy this stuff that I think would strike the average person as intrusive or things that without probable cause that the government has no business knowing?
3: Right, so it's really interesting. When we talk about the Fourth Amendment and I talk about unreasonable searches and seizures, Sort of the, the the basis of that is anything we have a reasonable expectation of privacy in, we are protected by the Fourth Amendment, meaning law enforcement wouldn't need to go to court and get a warrant if they wanted to get that information or track us. What's interesting is when we look at that concept of privacy, though, reasonable expectation of privacy, when we do something in public or we consent to information being collected about us, it erodes that Fourth Amendment privacy protection. It also erodes the protections that we have under our electronic surveillance laws in this country, particularly at the federal level. We have like a strong Electronic Communications Privacy Act. But each time you download an app, you click, I agree, and you're consenting often to very complex legal terms that none of us take time to read. You, me, it doesn't matter, we're, you know, lawyers, not lawyers, It you know, that pages and pages of legal jargon. No one's taking the time. We just want the app. We just want the convenience. And so when I say gray area that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that gray area is if we consented to this third party, i.e. whatever app it is or the app developer, to collect and use our location information. And that that means they're using all of our phones and smart devices have GPS chips in them which are automatically collecting our location using GPS satellites. It's an autonomous process. You don't turn it off or on. If we consent, however, to a specific company, we contractually give them the right to collect our location information. And none of us are reading those detailed terms. We don't have a federal data privacy law in place that protects that data. And so it enables all of those apps to make their money, not even from what the app itself is doing, most of our apps are free, but from the data the app is collecting about us. And sometimes that doesn't even have anything to do with the service that the app is providing. So it's collecting that data and selling it downstream to many, many, many third parties. That data then gets aggregated, you know, and hence the profile you mentioned. We can have profiles about us. But because we consented, we lose our Fourth Amendment protections, or at least that's the argument.
2: So, I mean, one of the reasons a lot of these apps are free is because, in fact, they have another way of deriving income, and you've just described it very eloquently. And meanwhile, usually with the interface, not that I've ever done anything but except the cookies, but usually with the interface, there's like some other thing. They say, you want to customize it? You want to see our terms? You want to, you know, there, there's another thing you can click. And I'm usually in kind of a hurry, so I don't want to know all that, uh, just Give me what I'm asking for. But so are we being insufficiently cautious? Are we not aware of the Faustian nature uh, of the bargain we're making here?
3: You certainly could say that many of us are accepting convenience over privacy. But part of the problem behind that is it's placing the burden on a consumer to understand their rights and the implications against a corporation that tends to have more sophisticated engineers who understand what the software will do and lawyers who have drafted terms that allow it to collect this information. So I wouldn't say so much that it's not, you know, this Faustian bargain as you describe it. We come from a place of unequal bargaining points, right? The consumer doesn't fully understand how the technology works and what the downstream implications can be. But part of that in the US is possible because we don't have a federal data privacy law that would really specify or more stringently control how apps and companies can collect and use our data and for what purposes it can be collected and used. So, yes, we are choosing convenience over privacy. I think it's very understandable, again, because we come from such disparate bargaining places between the user and the company. But it's also because there's so little in the way of law at the federal level to actually say hey this type of data is protected or geolocation data can only be collected when it's necessary to how the app functions say for maps or something like that
2: so we need to talk very specifically about the interface between this and government so you've already alluded to some of this or, or hinted at it obviously post Dobbs, there are going to be situations where people need to travel for an abortion uh, this allows I guess any interested party. I mean, I don't know. Does does fog reveal ever turn anybody down, <laughs> or if, if you show up with the money, you know, you're you're okay. But I mean, any interested party, specifically the government, to know that somebody's going to a state where they're, and probably even right down to the stick pin of you know they're going to this reproductive center in this particular state. That's the kind of thing we're worrying about, right?
3: Yes, I, I think. Just there's you had a couple points in there. One, Fog Reveal appears to be marketing most of its materials that EFF uncovered to law enforcement agencies, state, local, some federal. But it also does apparently sell to private security companies and potentially law firms, again, from documents uncovered by EFF as part of a FOIA, a series of FOIA requests. But this question of what data is revealing is interesting. You make the point about visiting a reproductive center or crossing state lines. What's really interesting is after Dobbs came down, Google made a very big splash in public news saying it would auto-delete location data for any user that had visited a reproductive health center. What's really interesting about that is Google immediately understood this problem. Google understood if we collect this data, which of course it was collecting, then by maintaining that data, we are creating evidence which could potentially form the basis for prosecution of users who visit reproductive clinics. And so that intersection post-Obs is remarkable because now we have to look at state laws. How are states regulating abortion? Roughly half have either banned or restricted rights to abortion access or abortion access. And how a state decides to criminalize abortion or how their state law is written is really important from the standpoint of all of this information that's being collected. Google knew if we auto delete it, we don't have the data so that if we get a search warrant, because say in Louisiana, abortion is banned and the fact that the data exists means we're going to be subject to a search warrant. And it's very difficult to not comply with a search warrant because that would be contempt of court. So Google made this very proactive decision on behalf of Google users to say we're auto-deleting this data. So it doesn't exist, period. Part of the thing that's troubling with Fog Reveal, and Fog Reveal is not alone. Its application is interesting how it's put together, this advertising ID data, together with just broader geographical data, enabling these, you know, searches of specific areas and specific devices. But Fog Reveal isn't alone in that. All of these apps that are collecting this location data are creating massive amounts of potential evidence for prosecution of something that until this year was legal for the past 50 years. So there's this wealth of information that is collected by private companies with our consent that yes we could look at and say wow that's incredibly evasive but now an entire you know swath of the population you know there's not much discussion about hey location data tells us all of these things including who somebody's with, when they visited a reproductive center. And in Fogg's case, we're talking about geolocation data, but many times apps are collecting other data as well that could be revealing about a person's you know, health status. And again, that is just massive amounts of electronic evidence of something that you know heretofore was lawful. And I guess the broader concern is we don't know where this train is ending. You know, we we, states are continually proposing legislation like Louisiana proposed legislation to outlaw IUDs as a form of birth control. So I think we, we stand at a precipice right now.
2: Right. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, I'm flashing back to the early aughts when we had a national debate over FISA and FISA warrants. We should say, first of all, as I understand it, Fog Reveal is founded by a couple of former DHS officials, right? Uh, including the engagingly named Matthew Broderick. And so... You know, we went through the whole FISA thing where, you know, there were sort of arguments about, well, what's what's a legitimate amount of intelligence gathering in, in an atmosphere or in a climate where you're worried about terrorism and to what degree are you collecting information that has nothing to do with terrorism just as kind of a byproduct of having a FISA warrant and being able to do certain kinds of surveillance. It seems to me we're not in that Kansas anymore with this. I mean, <laughs> why even bother to get a FISA warrant if you can just go to Fog Reveal and pay MX amount of money.
3: Exactly. And I think that's, you know, we've now had um, some members of Congress express these very concerns that you raise. I think one thing to point out is that with FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, we have a special court, the FISC court, right? The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And while that court operates in secrecy because it involves matters of national security or ostensibly involves matters of national security, some would argue, we do have a modicum of of oversight. And when you talk about the FISA warrants, again, that's that's still a court process that is in place, Mm -hmm. right? There is a framework of structure of oversight even though many would argue it's not enough oversight. And we also, you know, FISA only applies to very specific set of circumstances where there is a foreign intelligence activities going on. It, you're right. This is very different because the situation here is using commercial advertising data with really precise geolocation technology that every smart device we have has in it and automatically creates about all of us at all times. And so what is concerning and, and, you know, with the fog reveal situation is, yes, we completely step out of court oversight here. In some of the data that EFF collected about the use of fog reveal, Data from fog reveal or information collected from use of the fog reveal product formed the basis for warrants. Mm. But yet the use of fog reveal was not <laughs> revealed yes, in the yeah. warrant. I got you. In I the got warrant you. application.
2: Right. You get to use data that in historically you would probably have had to get a warrant to get the data that you're using to get a warrant. So Anne, before we run out of time here. I mean, it may be a constitutionally gray area, but there are ways in which legislation could conceivably codify protections that we would have that currently don't exist or require greater amounts of disclosure. You kind of alluded to all of this already, but is any of that even remotely on the horizon? I just, it's not like we're in the middle of an election season. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about this.
3: Yeah. So two things, right? Technology and law there's two ways to address these issues. so from the legal perspective and you know we I've talked about that lack of a data privacy law at the federal level. we had a bill introduced this you know this session in congress the american data privacy protection act or adppa. that bill moved further it went out of committee you know with a overwhelmingly passed vote bipartisan support really made progress drew a lot of attention and a lot of folks in this space felt ADPPA is going to pass. We're finally going to have a federal data privacy law. And yes, there were detractors from the law and critics of it, but by and large, it seemed it was going to go through. There was this one piece of it though, called preemption. And the federal law was ADPPA was attempting to preempt state laws and so some states in this void of federal legislation protecting consumer data privacy or citizen data privacy have have stepped in California in particular has legislated significantly in the data privacy space and these states did not want their protections watered down so back and forth you know we now are at an impasse it seems the session is closing out pretty quickly and to your point we're in that middle of the You know, this really heated election. Um, So will attention come to it to get this wrapped up before the session closes? It's really seeming more and more unlikely. And then this other piece of it, the technology, because to wrap up, I think, so what do we do? Well, one, we should all advocate for a strong federal data privacy law, particularly when we see how much more concerning Given state legislation in areas related to reproductive privacy and personal decision privacy, that information is much more concerning. So we all should be pushing for federal data privacy laws that protect us, and and that say, hey, this data can't be collected for certain purposes. It can't be sold. You know the specifics of ADPPA. We could have a whole nother show about, but. The other piece of it is technology. We all should be looking to our smart devices and mobile devices and making sure our settings, and this is not uh, each time you have to do this thing, but going into your settings, then going into the privacy, slightly different on Android versus Apple or Google devices, and making sure that you're turning off ad tracking. Apple's done something that's very helpful. They have an app tracking transparency, ATT, which makes it easy just with a click to say every single app that wants to track you and then sell your data downstream has to ask your specific permission for it. You should always click, no, this app can't track me. Interestingly enough, when we do that, the less of us that give our contractual consent to be tracked, we make software like fog reveals less powerful because it can't collect data if we haven't consented to it.
2: All right. Yes, I'm, as you're talking, I'm looking. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm looking at the tracking part of my I, privacy I, screen. I, right.
3: You just really you go into settings, privacy, and then it might be called advertising. It might be called ads. You can also turn off the ad ID on your phone. You can turn it off so it can't be collected. <laughs> you know, and again, that advertising ID is unique to each of our phones. Right. So you know, it tracks us across all kinds of platforms. So the, that's something all lo- of us should the, do. The
2: location part, though, you can't do anything about, right?
3: At the end of the day, you can't turn off the GPS chip. And in some ways, that's partly manufacturers are attempting to come into compliance with 911 requirements Mm -hmm. that our smart devices or our mobile devices can be located for safety purposes. You don't ever stop that.
2: Well, listen, we have to stop now, although this yeah. is I could keep going a long time, but we have to stop and you have to get back to your uh, Nicolas Cage screenplay about this. But and Toomey me, McKenna is a visiting professor of law at University of Richmond School of Law in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, you might, might want to just pick up your phone right now while you're thinking about it. Take a look. See what, if there's anything you might want to shut off there. Uh, but, Anne, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Colin it was a pleasure
2: And for the rest of you, thanks for listening to our wide-ranging consideration of fog including fog reveal and uh, we'll be back with another show in a day or two a
1: foggy day in London time.
2: I mm-hmm.